This interview with the late Roger Zelazny was part of the Probabilities series of programs that aired on KPFA in Berkeley beginning in 1977. The show was started by Lawrence Davidson, who was the science fiction book buyer at the legendary Cody's Bookstore in Berkeley, and myself at that time working as a behind-the-scenes volunteer at KPFA. Joining us intermittently and then as a full-time co-host was science fiction writer Richard A. Lupoff. With no guidance, no training, though Richard Lupoff had done some radio in Miami a few years earlier, we were all still finding our footing on December 7, 1979, when this interview was recorded in Zelazny's hotel room during a Bay Area science fiction conference. Today, a quarter century after his death from cancer at the age of 58, Roger Zelazny's star has dimmed, but from the early 1960s into the 1980s, Roger Zelazny was one of the giants in the world of fantasy and science fiction. Often expropriating characters from myths and legends from around the world, his stories and books delved into the nature of time and into fragmented multiverses. A poet as well as a fiction writer, his prose demonstrated that science fiction at the time was not merely a genre of ideas and character, but of literary merit as well, though he never escaped into the world of mainstream literature. Zelazny first burst like a comet onto the science fiction scene in the early 1960s, and with the award-winning novels This Immortal and Lord of Light, as well as his short stories and novelettes, he established himself as a force to be reckoned with. In 1970, the first of his ten-volume Chronicles of Amber series was published. It was called Nine Princes in Amber. This series of five books, focusing on a character named Corwin, was completed two years before the time of the interview. He would, a few years later, write another five books focusing on Corwin's son, Merlin. One reason Zelazny's reputation faded is because so little of his work was adapted. In 1977, a dreadful film adaptation of his novel Damnation Alley came and went in a flash. And outside of a short story adapted for The Twilight Zone, none of Zelazny's work has appeared on screen, though Lord of Light has been in development for decades. It's kind of odd that the Amber books have never been adapted for television. In this fragmented interview, recorded while people were coming and going and going and coming, Richard A. Lupoff focuses on Zelazny's publishing history, I focus on the Amber books, and Lawrence Davidson asks questions about Roadmarks, Zelazny's most recent novel at the time. None of us paid much attention to the location of the microphone. The interview was digitized, remastered, and re-edited into some kind of hopefully coherent form in August 2020. The interview aired once in early 1980 and has not been heard for 40 years. Roger Zelazny, you are an old-time Cleveland fan, is that correct? Yes, I lived in Cleveland and I was a fan. I have never seen a copy, but there was a legendary fanzine from the late 1950s called Thurban. The early 1950s, 1953 to be precise. Again, I've never seen this, but based on legend... It was the worst fanzine ever published. It contained the worst <laughs> fan fiction ever written, and you were the star. Is that correct? Phrasing is somewhat <laughs> interesting. I, I was the, uh, I was the uh, associate editor of 
No, I, I, I didn't do that much for it. In fact, I believe I only wrote one piece for it. Actually, it was a story I had rejected from Planet Stories, which we had decided to serialize. We ran the first installment. The second half of my story never appeared. Does that survive in any form, anywhere? No. Let me put it this way. It, it would not compare with modern fanzines. Since you've mentioned Planet Stories, I, I have notes here on a few of your early sales in uh, the 1962-65 period when you were working for uh, Seal Goldsmith, Ed Furman. Was it, was it Furman, or was that before his raising? No, it, it was Furman. It was yes. Ed. And Fred Pohl and Doc Mounds. Yeah. I had not known that you ever had any involvement with Planet Stories, and if you could just uh, ramble briefly about your involvement with Planet or any of those other magazines which no longer survive. Oh. No, uh, my involvement was was strictly one-sided. I, this was uh, in the late 40s and early 50s, actually. I uh, did write a great number of stories, which I submitted all the way around to everything uh, on the stands, but I, at that time, didn't sell anything. I was mm -hmm. still a school kid. Did you ever get any interesting responses or just the proverbial printed form rejection? Oh, Ray Palmer once scrawled a nice sentence on uh, one of them, and I... I Someone else did, too. I forget now whether it was Fletcher Pratt or Harry Harrison. But as I recall, there were only one or two. What was Pratt editing? It was a brief connection with a, it seems to me, with a short-lived magazine. Now, with Harry Harrison, I remember it was Vortex, which didn't last too long. Vortex lasted two issues. Yeah. Oh, you, you did the, the typical struggling would-be writer sending off the stories, uh -huh. getting back to the... Uh, between, I'd say, ages 12 and 16, I must have sent off a couple hundred stories, none of which really went. Do you have copies of those anywhere? No. After a point when a story had been around and exhausted all possible markets, it seemed a shame to just keep it, so I, I turned them over and used the back for scratch papers for mm -hmm. writing new stories. Of these editors that you did sell to, once you started around 62. Actually, your first publication was 62. Right. The sale might have been a first little sale was in March of 62. The first appearance was in the April issues, actually, of both of uh, Amazing and Fantastic. Seal Goldsmith was right. the editor there. Did you ever have any personal dealings with her? Do you have any feelings about her? Actually, I never met Seal until years later. ran into her briefly once. Something like 16 out of my first 17 stories that year. I, I think that she was really one of the great unsung editors. She published not only your early works, but Tom Dish's and uh, Ursula Le Guin's. Piers Anthony. That I didn't know. Those uh, Amazing and Fantastics from the early 60s were really remarkable magazines. She had a, a particular uh, capacity for, for finding young writers who hadn't been around and didn't have any name values yet. From those very earliest sales, the ones that started really getting you a name, of which I, I guess the first was a rose for Ecclesiastes. I would say, yeah. That was a Hugo nominee. How did, you know, you feel about your work as you were going through these from the very earliest sales into Rose for Ecclesiastes? In 65, you, you had three stories that won nebulas, although because of the peculiarities of the rules, they didn't all win nebulas in 65. Yes, that was a good year. No, that was a very good year. Since you had been selling for uh, three or four years up to that point, 62, 63, 64, and then in, in 65, everything just started to blossom. 
did you detect a particular growth or development in your work? I like to think I did. I had a definite plan in mind when I began selling. That is, I intended to uh, restrict myself to short stories for the first couple of years, gradually lengthening them as I uh, gained confidence, until I finally felt that I'd reached the point where I could do a novel. It was about two years before I attempted my first novel, which was And Call Me Conrad, No, This Immortal. But I was somewhere after about a year, there was, there was a definite feeling that things were changing, that I was uh, had a better grasp of what it was that I was doing, that I understood more the things that I could do and the things that I couldn't do at that point, and, uh, and managed to think of a few ways around some of the things that I couldn't do. In this era, right now we're in the mid-60s, the critics were uh, making great loud noises about something called the new wave in science fiction. The supposed leading new wave writers, at least in this country, were the three names that you always heard in conjunction with one another were Delaney and Tom Dish and uh, your own. Uh, is this a, uh, a pattern which was imposed only through critics' perceptions, or did you as, as a participant feel that there was validity to it? Actually, I didn't really feel there was validity to it. I thought it was strictly a, a critical interpretation of things. I have compared notes on this with Delaney several occasions, and neither of us feels that we write that much like the other. I think it's just the uh, the fact that th uh, a number of new writers who were doing different things uh, began doing them at approximately the same time that made it an easy thing to do to call it a, a movement. I mean, we didn't all sit down together one night and decide, let's, let's start a movement, you know. <laughs> to come at, at the same question from a different angle then, did you then, or do you now, for that matter, perceive your work in in any particular context? Uh, you know, I, I, that you're marching along in the grand old tradition of, say, Doc Smith, or uh, John Varley says that he's very conscious, not in an imitative sense, but in, in, in the idea that his favorite author and a person whom he admires and strives uh, to an extent to emulate is Heinlein. Do you feel that, that you are working out of any particular tradition in science fiction or in general literature, or that you're part of, of any particular tradition? I try not to repeat myself, for one thing. Gore Vidal once said that every writer has a cast of characters and they keep showing up and book after book at, at different ages and with different names. It's like a repertory company. I suppose that that's partly true of any writer. Where my characters come from, I don't really know. My own reading background, uh, as I said earlier, I was a fan many years ago. Uh, the pulp tradition is there behind me, uh, and I was reading the pulps at an impressionable age. On the other hand, I also read a lot of other stuff. It's a difficult thing to separate out. I don't feel any particular influences. I can name particular writers that I uh, that appealed to me very much then. Who well, might have been, that, like Weinbaum and yeah. Kuttner, who were particular uh, favorites of mine, and Heinlein. But even more probably Weinbaum and Kuttner. But on the other hand, I don't know that uh, anything I do uh, is patterned on them, or not consciously at least, and uh, there might be some influences there, which... Uh, I'm conscious. I just, I'm just not, uh, not aware. If those are the traditional writers that you particularly admired, uh, would you care to name any contemporaries that you uh, that you enjoy? 
Oh, quite a few of them. You just named one recently. Varley, I, I fond of his stuff. I, I like George Martin. Whenever anyone asks me this question, I uh, I usually give a different list of names because there are <laughs> so many. With so much science fiction being published today, I, I have not read everything <coughs> written by everyone. I might have read a good person's worst book or uh, <laughs> or a bad guy's best book. Another phenomenon that's taken place in, in recent years is that uh, you've been getting adapted sort of semi-comic book called The Illustrated Zelazny, Lord of Light as a theatrical production, Damnation Alley as a film. Yeah, there would be that. The film, um, well, I wasn't happy with the production. It went through a variety of uh, changes and rewrites, I understand, and it I suppose the best, simplest thing I can say is that it didn't bear that much resemblance to the original story. Um, when you're talking about a movie or a comic or something, you're either taking a storyline and following it, or you're taking it and departing from it in various directions. Was there any place in the production of Damnation Alley where you would any say whatsoever, or no. once the book was sold, it was out of your hands completely? That's right. It was one of those situations where I give them the right to take the title, take the story, do whatever they would no, basically, it's one of those situations where if you were uh, dealing with a uh, someone's going to produce a film, you only get as much control as you can work out in the deal, and uh, generally you will get a better deal if there are more more people interested in a particular property. Um, then you've got a sort of bidding situation where you can get more concessions from the person who ultimately gets the thing because he's got competition. On the other hand, if there's only one party interested, uh, it's either a take-it-or-leave-it deal, and uh, in that case, I took it because I wanted the money, and it was certainly enjoyed having the money because I <laughs> did some nice things with it, but no, I didn't have any control over it. Was there any part of the movie you approved of? <laughs> it had a very good title. In your wildest dreams, would you have imagined the lead character being played by Jan Michael Vincent? No. <laughs> they, they kept listing different people who were being considered or being asked to consider taking a part in it. Actually, I understand Lee Marvin read the book and decided that uh, he didn't want to get up on motorcycles anymore at that <laughs> point. And uh, somewhere somewhere along the line, uh, they'd said that uh, they were thinking of asking Steve McQueen if they'd wanted to do that, I would have been very happy. At what point did you know if they, when they turned from uh, motorcycles to whatever they used in the film? <laughs> I had very little in the way of progress reports on this. I Usually usually some someone would see some mention of it in a movie magazine, or I think it was Popular Science or Mechanics had done a piece on the vehicle, the Landmaster they built for it, and I'd get these things through the mail from friends of mine and fans, and I got most of my information that way. Uh, and in its wake, at least, it, it, it did stimulate sales of the book. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> Putting Damnation Alley aside as a Thank you. <laughs> probably painful experience for you. What about the stage version of Lord of Light? I know nothing whatsoever about this. I, I mean, I, I do not know what tack was taken. I did not see the script. Okay, I, 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 I didn't see Damnation Alley, uh, and you did, and swap places on Lord of Light and between the two, I'm sure Damnation Alley was better. Oh dear. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that because the people who, who did it were, as you know, a local theater company in San Francisco, and they clearly had their hearts in the right place. Uh, they were really sincere, trying hard, but it just did not come off. Is there any kind of 
work being done on uh, an option for Lord of Light or Creatures of Light and Dark Darkness for the movies these days? Uh, Lord of Light is under film option. Creatures of Light and Darkness is not. We're talking again about one on Dream Master. It had been under option at one point, and my uh, short story, The Keys to December, is under option. Again, just just sitting and, and watching what's been going on, it seems to me that in terms of popularity with the book buying and reading and collecting public, that, that you have just been going from strength to strength, almost from the start. But an odd thing has happened. The critics, after their original uh, fervent uh, interest in you, seem largely to have lost interest. Uh, well, I suppose, you know, that is only my perception. I don't really read reviews or uh, critical pieces about my stuff uh, unless they're usually pushed in front of me. But I, I gather that what you say is is correct because I've heard it from other people. I don't really know. that. I suppose these days, though, that the... Uh, the volume of science fiction being produced uh, is one thing that influences the choices of critics and where they're going to place their emphasis uh, in looking for new directions uh, in the market itself. But uh, as for myself, I don't know. I, I almost think of these things in a cyclical fashion. I don't see any special reason uh, going one way or the other. When you began Nine Princes in Amber, did you consciously know it would be a multi-volume series? Not on the first page, no. I... Um had a long story in mind which was uh, considerably more hazy toward the end. I knew by the time I was about a quarter or a third of the way into the book that it would take more than one book to finish it. I really didn't know how many books it would take. At what point did you find out? Oh, somewhere partway through the third book, A Sign of the Unicorn, I began getting the feeling that it would probably take about five books. How worked out was the plot from the beginning? I really did not have the whole plot worked out uh, initially. I began with the characters, a certain number of situations, and um, I didn't have the uh, entire thing worked out until farther along. I don't know the exact point, though. Initially, no, I didn't start with a complete outline. Did you base any of the princes on real people? Not really. No, they, they, they may be composite dredged up from my subconscious, but uh, not intentionally. Is there any place where you took the idea of going through shadow? Again, not that I can think of. No, this was something which I, I simply worked out. I don't recall any source. When you were working on Sign of the Unithorn, how aware were you that, that it was kind of a British drawing room comedy and the entire thing was taking place and people talking rather than actual actions? No, I didn't think of it in those terms. See, uh, the trouble with these books is that I see them all just as one big story, and I, I have a little difficulty chopping it up into five pieces, recalling which action occurred in which book. Will there be more in the book? There may. All five of the Amber books are currently under film option, and the agreement I made with the option holder was that well, it involved the possibility of making more than one Amber film. There is a clause in there to the effect that if this were to be done and they were to exhaust the entire plot line in all five books and there was sufficient interest uh, that uh, another Amber movie might go commercially, that I would agree to write a sixth Amber book to provide the basis for the script for a uh, another film. So I'm just holding off on doing anything more with Amber until I see how this mm -hmm. is resolved. 
if you do more Amber books, will the hero remain Corwin, or will it be Martin or Merlin? Well, there's that possibility. See, I, the way I had originally conceived it, when I, as soon as I realized there would be more than one book, I had toyed with the idea of telling each book from a different uh, Amberite's point of view. Actually, I was thinking of, uh, of the Alexandria Quartet, uh, Daryl, of telling the same story over and over in, uh, from the point of view of each brother uh, and or sister, and uh, advancing the uh, the story just slightly with each one, but giving an entirely different cast to all of the occurrences. The only thing of this that actually remains in the series is the uh, auto wreck, to which I keep returning and getting a new angle on from book to book. But it, it is possible if I were to do another book that I, I would take a different character and go off in a different direction. You know Random's fate from the beginning. No. I intentionally left that part uh, a blank in my mind just for the purpose of not killing whatever excitement it might involve for me in writing it. I, I didn't know until I was approaching it. If Oberon was so all-knowing in his powers, how come he couldn't foresee his eventual fate? Oh, he did foresee it. I intended to give that impression that he knew what was going to happen, but that he was slightly nobler than the others had believed he might be, mm. and that he went ahead with it. Charlie Brown indicated that uh, there was something bizarre that happened with the first editions of Nine Princes in Amber, that they were pulped by accident. Yes, this does seem to have been the case. Here's I can figure out what uh, happened, is that a book of mine called Creatures of Light and Darkness was due to be pulped at the time the Nine Princes was, was pulped. Uh, Creatures of Light and Darkness had been in print for over a year, and its sales had fallen off uh, to a very low point, and it would have been the logical time to pulp it. However, after Nine Princes uh, was pulped, which was approximately three months after it had come out and was still selling well, uh, Creatures of Light and Darkness stayed in print for about another year. Sort of led to the belief that uh, the wrong book got the axe, but I don't know it as a fact. When you began writing Nine Princes in Amber, did you think that it might become, because it begins in the hospital and on Earth, that it might wind up being science fiction rather than fantasy, like Jack of Shadows? Yes, the thought had passed through my mind. I, I just decided to let the story take its own route, though. Actually, that whole first chapter, I, I really almost began it as an exercise. I wanted to take the classic amnesia situation and have a person slowly find out who he was. Um, while I was writing that first chapter, that was really all I had in mind. I wasn't certain what I was going to do once he had uh, left Greenwood. It, it was only when he, he began getting in touch with his uh, various relatives that I started to see the way the uh, entire story was going to move. At this point, the tape becomes unintelligible. When we pick it up again, Roger Zelazny is talking about the book that would be his latest book, Roadmarks, which begins more or less in a similar way to Nine Princes in Amber. Lars Davidson asked him the question, whether what he was doing was looking at science fiction time travel, was he looking at psychic ideas of the New Age, what was going on there? Well, I'm aware of that standard science fiction type ideas with respect to uh, parallel worlds and so forth. I did want to do something a little bit different with uh, time travel in this book, well, for one reason, I'm not that fond of time travel stories per se. They, there are certain inherent paradoxes in a normal time travel story which I, I bother me, uh, so I normally don't write them. I didn't intend really to do a story which involved uh, 
any sort of time travel until I had something that was a little bit different as to what you're asking on this. I suppose there is some uh, something of an overlay of that. It wasn't in the foreground by any means. Whenever I have a particular idea that I'm uh, playing with in a story, I, for one thing, do not like to um, make it a cut-and-dried thing. I like the, there to be... Um, some resonances with other in other areas. I, I, I don't uh, like a completely mechanical thing, so I uh, I suppose there uh, there is something of that. With me, writing itself is not a completely conscious process. At least to some degree, a uh, subconscious plotter. I feel personally that as, as a result of this, I get things into my stories which I would not get if I followed a point by point outline. If you're dredging things out of your subconscious and writing in a sort of semi-free associational style, uh, while you're doing a story, you get you pull up a lot more things which you know, which are familiar, and they, they work their ways into the story, and I think create the impression of a larger universe than if it was a very precise stage set which you were working everything. How long did it take you to write roadmarks? Now, that's hard to say because uh, I was interrupted a number of times uh, during the course of it to do other things and to take a few trips. Um, I think there was a period of about nine months from beginning to end. But uh, I don't know if I were to subtract all the distractions, uh, what it would actually have come to. So it was less than a year. Roadmarks is a Valentine Del Rey hardcover published... Right now, October 79 is uh, one of the few things I've done that involved time travel. I did one short story years ago called uh, Divine Madness. My feelings on the thing are that uh, I don't like playing around with time travel ideas ordinarily because of uh, various paradoxes involved, which uh, give me a lot of trouble. And uh, plus, an awful lot has been done with time travel, and I don't, uh, didn't feel it was worthwhile unless I had something a little bit different to say. And it occurred to me that it might be, um, fun to try, uh, a story which did involve, uh, that concept, uh, and try to do with time in this book what I had done with, uh, space in the Amber books, particularly uh, in those sequences involving hell rides and walks through shadow and so forth. And I, I actually got the idea for this one while um, driving in New Mexico, just for pleasure one Sunday. When I'd started out on a, a very nice super highway and uh, took an interesting-looking road in the space of about ten miles, it uh, it was actually almost as if I had driven backward through time. I, I kept it; the road kept getting worse and worse, is what it was, and the places through uh, which I uh, passed kept getting more and more primitive until. Uh, Finally, it was these, the place I uh, reached near the end of the drive was, uh, could have been very easily a, uh, a settlement in the last century. While all this was going on, I first began thinking of the, uh, the descriptions I had used in the Amber books of the, the, the radical change from the one environment to the other. And I, I began thinking of time in terms of a superhighway with considerable branching and decided that it, I might make this the subject of my next book. The more I 
thought about it, the more I thought it would be fun also to uh, structure the book a little bit differently rather than just a, uh, a straight sequence of chapters, fairly linear fashion with one event following the other. So when I sat down to write the book, I, I decided on this, this breakdown that I did use because it was tied in with the way I was thinking about time at that point, all of the chapters being numbered either one or two. The purpose of this really was, or the structure of the book, was that all the chapters, numbered one, follow my protagonist in a straight linear fashion, and most of the time he's on the road or near it, and uh, all the chapters titled two take place at various points in time, so that with respect to chapter one, they could really occur in any sequence. I had first conceived of mixing them up much more radically than I did now in the final version. A person reading it might see that they are a bit out of sync if you're just looking at the entire book in a linear fashion, because I don't have Randy leaving Ohio and entering upon the road until uh, later in the book, after I've already had him in several sequences along the road. This was not intended to be a normal flashback in terms of the uh, the structure of a standard book. It was, it was actually intended as part of the out-of-sync sequencing of the chapters. It reminded me at, at points, uh, especially with the Randy character showing up and then being introduced, it was, it was almost like uh, some of the things that uh, William Burroughs has done, just writing something and then chopping it up. Actually, that <clears throat> the comparison that occurred to me was Myself, while I was doing it, uh, there was no intentional modeling or anything, was Heller's Catch-22, which, uh, of course, was more of a flashback technique, but the effect in reading it was something a bit similar here and there. I wasn't quite, I wasn't really randomizing things, because uh, just for aesthetic purposes, I did put some chapters close together to um, preserve particular emotion or feeling or uh, for a sequence of events that I, uh, I thought were a little more dramatic. Well, it was fun doing it that way. I, I sometimes do like to play around with the structure of a book, obviously. Now, this is the first book I, I've done where I've uh, played around with the structure of it uh, to this extent since Doorways in the Sand, probably, which really just uh, kind of involved a series of flashbacks, uh, which was also fun doing. And it would be fun in that book to uh, begin each chapter with a cliffhanger rather than end it with one. And then it occurred to me I might be able to begin it and end it with one. You had mentioned before an interesting story dealing with the title of the book. Oh, the original title of the book, while it is shown on the cover now, is not shown as title. That is to say, I had decided to call the book Last Exit to Babylon, which I liked as a title. Uh, there was no deliberate comparison intended uh, with uh, Hubert Selby Jr.'s book of some years ago, uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn, which actually I hadn't read at the time I wrote this book. I've since read it. My editors, though, felt that because Selby's book had a reputation which might turn off librarians with respect to purchasing the book, if I did use the title I had in mind, it could uh, hurt book sales in the library area. So they suggested I uh, come up with an alternate title, which is when I decided, okay, I'll go along with it and change it to Roadmarks. I've had that happen to me. Once before, I did something for a joke just to see how sensitive publishers might be to uh, anything that might hurt library sales of a hardcover book. I inserted a scene once in a in a book 
I'd written for another publisher, which I had no intention of leaving in the book, actually. It was a, a fairly detailed sex scene in a book which didn't really, wasn't really a book which uh, required that sort of thing, particularly at that point. But uh, I wanted to see what sort of editorial reaction I would get. And when the manuscript was in, uh, an editor did call me on that and say, well, I want to talk to you about this particular scene on pages such and such. And I didn't have to get the manuscript because I knew what they were talking about. And I uh, waited there. They were very nice about it. They said, if you want this thing in the book, I mean, uh, the author would certainly go along with it. But we feel it might hurt library sales on this book because we feel that many librarians still think of science fiction in terms of juvenile fiction. And a librarian finding a science fiction novel with a scene of this sort and it might be less inclined to buy the book. This was some years ago now. I don't really think that this is true. I mean, science fiction is as much adult fiction as anything else, and uh, if uh, it is a story which calls for this sort of thing, I, I, I wouldn't have any hesitation about uh, putting it in. But in this particular book, it, it was out of place, and I had it just intended as a, as a sort of trial balloon to see what that publisher's feelings were on this sort of thing. Actually, I, I then intended to uh, insert such scenes into every book I did for that publisher and let them call me and ask me to remove it so that I could then write an article called Scenes I Was Asked to Cut and sell it to some men's magazine, but I got lazy. That was interesting to see the attitudes uh, towards science fiction. I think they've changed. Uh, I think it's, it's wrong. I would not go along with uh, anything which really radically distorted a book I'd written. I have very seldom been asked to cut or change anything. I mean, I've had a few title changes over the years. My first books with Ace uh, had titles changed simply because they wanted something that sounded more like science fiction because they wanted to keep their science fiction in a definite category. It had to have a science fiction cover and a title that indicated science fiction and uh, something like In Call Me Conrad did not necessarily sound that mu as much like science fiction as something called This Immortal. But uh, in recent years, I, I think we've gotten away from a straight category thing because more and more science fiction is being published without the science fiction label. I actually think that's a salutary thing. I saw somewhere that you were working on uh, either a history, something to do with the Indians in New Mexico. Oh, yeah. Um, th this actually was, was a film outline, oh. which I did. And subsequently I did a, a film treatment based on it. This is still at a, it's still up in the air that, uh, I don't know whether the, yet whether the film is actually going to be made. And um, quite a few writers in New Mexico, and eventually uh, almost all of them write something involving the background there, and there's a, a, quite a wealth of Indian material flying around, and particularly someone such as myself who enjoys working with mythology and comparative religion and folklore. There's a tendency to try to uh, find a way to work some of that material into few things occasionally, so it did turn up there, and it'll probably turn up in other places in my writing. What are you working on now? A short story involving a uh, a character I uh, wrote about back in the 60s called Dilvish, a sort of sword and sorcery type figure. I hadn't written anything about him in about 15 years, and then in, in one month I had something like three requests for short stories, and I, I decided to pursue it a little further and do a few more. I did do a book this summer for Ace. It's going to be one of those larger trade books with interior illustrations. It's, the title is Changeling. 
that should be my next book in print following roadmarks so at the moment i'm doing catching up on a few short things i want to do before i start thinking about my next book as i said at the top of the podcast the first five amber books had already been published by 1979 and zelazny would return to amber in 1985 with trumps of doom roadmarks seemed to be the first volume of a new series but Zelazny never followed up with a sequel. During the 1990s, following the publication of the 10th volume in the series Prince of Chaos in 1991, he completed five more short stories set in the world of Amber. Prince of Chaos would turn out to be Zelazny's final solo published science fiction fantasy novel. However, during the 1990s, he did collaborate on works with several other writers. His most famous collaboration, though, was Deus Irae with Philip K. Dick, which came out in 1976. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.